1: All rise.
2: Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly.
3: Good morning. Kelly, Welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. We're broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center here in the heart of Silicon Beach in downtown Santa Monica. So please be seated. we got a great show for you today. We have one of New Zealand's most awarded documentary filmmakers, and she has a hot documentary, Kim.com, Caught in the Web just premiered at South by Southwest and it's getting quite the buzz. If you're unfamiliar, Kim.com was the founder of Mega Upload and has been in a protracted five-year battle over copyright infringement with the United States government and they're trying to extradite him to the United States following their dramatic, almost a Salman Bin Laden-like raid on his mansion in New Zealand five years ago. So without further ado, let me bring on Annie Golson, and she's a professor at the University of Auckland. Um, professor, thank you for joining us. Yes, hello. You premiered this documentary, um, Kim.com, um, Caught in the Web at South by Southwest. And, That's um, right. And so let's let's back up a little bit, and for those who are unfamiliar with Kim.com, um, he is a, a larger than life person in so many ways. And um, and I, that's why I mentioned that it seems this is almost like an opera just because of the, the size and the, the grandiosity of all the characters. Um, so Kim is that unusual mix of a, a Finnish German child um, who has some initial success in Germany, but also has some run ins with the log. Can you tell us about that?
4: Yeah, well, that's right. As we, um, we show in the film, using some great archives from Germany, um, Kim really burst into the public consciousness in Germany as a young hacker. So he was part of that kind of early wave of mostly young people who found computers an intriguing playground, you know, it was a whole new world, a sort of generation of young people who grew up with computers. So he, like many other young people, um, began his career as a hacker. And yes, he did have a few brushes with the law at the time, indeed. As, um, there was quite a lot of grey areas in those days, of course, because it was a new technology and I suppose it's the issues of, there wasn't much computer security, and if a young person came across a sort of closed door on the computer and could open it, it was pretty tempting to do that.
3: And apparently he did that for NASA and the Pentagon.
4: <laughs> so the rumor goes, um, I don't think that the, the interesting thing about hacking, of course, it's very difficult to prove or disprove what anyone does. Sure. Because in a sense, it's like, well, we know that today. More than ever, Um, but yes, he claimed to have performed some pretty high-profile hacks against some large institutions. As other hackers of the time said, they were never quite sure if this was the Hollywood version of hacking or the real version. But yes, um, that was certainly, let's say, swirling around the, the hacker sphere at the time.
3: And yes, well, a story takes its own life in the telling, it seems. but um it he then gets into some trouble for insider trading.
4: That's right. There was a company, let's buy it dot com, which was a um was kind of like an early version of eBay or Amazon. So this was the very early stages of um, online shopping. And the story goes, or this is certainly what the state claimed was that he invested a lot of money, made a lot of publicity about that investment. The shares jumped and then he sold. I mean, he has a different set of interpretations. And I do have to say, at that point, insider trading was a very, also a very new law. Again, this is all kind of pioneering um, moments, I guess, in internet technologies and how they interfaced with commerce. So, um, yes, but he did, in both of these instances, he did get um, minor charges, but by that time I think he was pretty fed up with Germany, so he moved to Hong Kong.
3: And he was there, and then ultimately is he able to get residency in New Zealand? Did he launch um, right. Mega mega Upload in Hong Kong, or did he launch it in New Zealand?
4: In, in, in Hong Kong. Well I have to say we can't have too many spoilers or people won't watch my film.
3: Oh, okay. <laughs> um, well, no, that's gonna, okay. That's
4: okay. Just There's just lots of the, good the,
3: pictures. The big event, the big event. Um but but for those who are unfamiliar, and we actually talked about it on this show at the time of the the, the, the arrest, Mega Upload was the thirteenth most popular site on the internet and responsible for four percent of internet traffic. Its ads had Kardashians, Will I Am um, Kanye. I mean, it was quite a force on the internet.
4: It was huge, yes.
3: And I guess he was.
4: Yes, it was indeed. And, and and Kim did begin mega upload while he was in Hong Kong. That's correct. And there is an origin. There is an origin story, which is Kim's always loved his cars, and he did a lot of car racing, particularly in something called the Gumball Rally, which is a sort of. Mm-hmm. What I understand not being a car nut is a sort of semi-legal car race. And he was filming himself as he raced these cars because he was often winning and he wanted to share these videos with his friends. At that time, he could not upload big files, or none of us could upload big files onto email. So he created Mega Upload to solve this problem of circulating his car videos. Interesting. So that's the kind of origin story.
3: And it, he would later he would later get in trouble in New Zealand for something going like what was it, like a hundred and twenty kilometers per hour in a forty mile forty forty kilometers um segment uh, or something like that but um that's
4: right I mean he moved to a very quiet rural affluent neighborhood where there's lots of horses around, and there was quite a lot of objections to this fleet of cars I have to say disgruntled neighbors um So, yes, I believe he did get a ticket for speeding. Um, I don't know a lot of detail about that, but I know that that's what occurred, and it has figured into some of the issues facing his extradition from New Zealand and the residency that he was originally granted.
3: So, Mega uploads a place where you can share files, and it becomes a target for... I guess, the U.S. government, and Hollywood in particular, who believe it's it's a a piracy center.
4: Well, that's right, and I think that's the nub of the legal case, really. Um, Kim claims he created a platform, really, to share his car videos, but, I mean, this was fairly early in the cloud services. You could say he was an innovator, really, of cloud services. Um, And, of course, there was an army of young people Sitting around waiting for something to be invented like that. And Kim would claim, under the current American law, and it's, you know, well, you know, you guys would know more than me because I'm not a lawyer, but I have found copyright law and extradition law. I mean, sometimes I joke I've been to law school because I've really had to (laughs) learn a lot, and it's very complex, and, you know, the territories are all different. But it seems to me the de facto law is usually the American law. Um, and Kim claims under the DMCA he's not responsible for the activities of his users. He himself was not uploading material as far as I can tell. But certainly it was a platform that a lot of people found very useful, probably for both infringing and non-infringing purposes. But now, the, the case against him argues he was putting incentives in place Um, So that's, you know, to encourage infringement. So that's the nub of the court case. You know, in the film, I don't feel it's for me to make a kind of legal judgment, but I try in pretty simple ways to spell out what I see as two sides to the argument. You know, law in a way, I mean, I've worked quite a lot with law. Usually it's been human rights law but copyright law doesn't translate itself in dazzling ways to the screen, really, because everything's about file size and, you know, reward systems. So it's not like, you know, a body in the spare room or a bloody glove or something like that. So I do try and spell the legal issues out as clearly as I can. But, you know, I don't feel it's up to me to make a judgment. That's really for the courts to decide.
3: But for a copyright case, you do have some amazingly dramatic footage, most notably mm. the the raid on his compound mm. that you, know, you would think they were, they were going after Osama bin Laden.
4: Well, that's right. And, I, you know, I don't know how much um, your listeners know about New Zealand, but we're a pretty small, pretty peaceable country. Our police don't carry guns. When we are involved in any international war situations, it's quite controversial and generally New Zealanders prefer that we assume a peacekeeping role and that's been another issue that's come up recently. Um, So this raid against Kim.com, but to fill in a bit of the story, Kim while he was in Hong Kong fell in love and got married and started having children and I think that he like many people just thought New Zealand would be a better place to raise children so he came to New Zealand, and they found the grandest house in the land. We think it's the biggest house in the whole country, which he tried to buy, but he wasn't permitted to buy it, so they rented it. Um, and this was to be their second home. They wanted to, to keep their home in um, Hong Kong, which was the top floor of a pretty nice hotel. Um, so that was the plan. But quite soon after they moved here, there was this very dramatic raid with 70 police and dogs and helicopters, um, which for us was, you know, we wouldn't even treat our worst meth dealers and drug dealers in that fashion. So it was definitely a spectacular raid. And at that point, Kim was quite reclusive. None of us really knew we had him living amongst us except his immediate neighbours. So this was very dramatic. And, I mean, and, made for TV, if you like.
3: Oh, it's 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 brilliant. I mean, I've, I've seen the clip, and you know, he's all the interviews he does. It, it seems to come up, and um, so pull him back. Um, you, you're a filmmaker in Auckland. You've uh, had a, a number of successful documentaries, and you know, your PhD, and you, you teach at the uh, University of Auckland, and. How did this come to your attention? Well, you can't...
4: I, it's really hard to explain again how much impact Kim has had in New Zealand. You know, not only just the raid, but from the raid on, um, he has been a very visible figure um, in, in our country, insofar as he's almost entered into the lexicon. You know, we just... He's just sort of... Kim, Kim.com names everywhere. Um So I was, uh, really, I was approached, I'd been thinking about doing a documentary, but I knew it would be really hard because this is an issue, as you know, that people are scrutinizing really, really closely. And I had not really understood the kind of tensions of what I would call the copyright wars up until I really started making the film. I mean, to be honest, I've never done very well with my films commercially. They get a lot of critical success but I've felt really left out, let, let down by existing traditional distribution in the past. So, you know, as much as I don't like people pirating my work, I didn't feel particularly favorable either towards traditional distribution models because I think that they do favor affluent people with lots of P&A to spend and it's just quite difficult if you're an independent like I am you know, which is partly why I have a teaching job, but I have to say I like teaching as well. So, you know, it's worked (laughs) out for me. But I do think, you know, independent filmmakers do have quite a tough time surviving. Um, So, you know, I was inclined to be interested in the film. I was curious as a New Zealander to understand why the FBI seemed to be conducting this raid from the North Shore Police Station. So there was just a lot of what I considered hot, button issues concerning our digital age that the dot-com case seemed to bring up you know even to the point that they exceeded Kim as an individual it seemed to me that the case was really important on a number of fronts so I was thinking about all of these things as one does and I was approached by a a, um, Kiwi-based German producer a guy Alex Bezer who lives here in New Zealand so we decided to um Yes, to try and raise money to make the film, and we were able to raise funding relatively easily. I think because it's a you know a New Zealand based story, but it's got a lot of international purchase.
3: And so it, that's
4: pretty much how we started. But you know, a lot of people in my film festival screenings have asked about my relationship with Kim Dotcom as my primary subject, and um. You know, the interesting thing about being an independent filmmaker, independent documentary filmmaker, is that you need to be not only independent, but be seen to be independent. And, you know, initially I don't think Kim was... I mean, there's always been interest in doing documentaries on him. So, you know, it took me a couple of years to really get a primary interview with him. It took a lot of negotiation to get access to some of his archive. So, you know, we were very much independent from Kim, yet, you know, he is a human being with a life and whenever you make a documentary, you're pretty acutely aware of the impact that work could have. You know, it has real impact in the real world. So um, so that was always a pretty interesting and complex negotiation, which is the case with many documentaries, as the filmmakers listening will know, Um but in in this instance it was particularly charged at times
3: and but he seems pleased with the film uh, you know he's been to it when um you know we mentioned that we were going to be, when we I started putting out articles about the film he started following me on twitter so he's very interested in this topic you know, is was it fair to say he's pleased with the result
4: well i mean i think he's got mixed feelings about it um but You know, now as the reviews come out, a number of them, like with Ars Technica, argued that I've done that thing, which is almost a miracle. I've done a balanced documentary about a controversial internet figure, and I do feel that it is a balanced piece of work. So, you know, there's some harsh criticism of Kim within the film, which he must find a bit difficult. But on the whole, I think a lot of the reviewers comment on on the issues i bring up as well as kim himself and i think that kim is quite a passionate advocate he's an anti-surveillance advocate he's a pro-technology advocate and i think some of the debates around the issues that the film brings up i hope please him but um you know i think it's it's never easy to see a film about your own life
3: no but yeah, your, your point is well taken. I think, I think it was Gizmodo that said that you, you did the inconceivable in, in making um, Kim.com um, likable or sympathetic. And they, they, they found that, that that wasn't what they would expect it to see. And uh, so I, I guess that you achieved the result there.
4: Well, you know, I think, you know, it's quite the Rolling Stones said he's neither a hero nor a heel and Carrying on with the kind of H theme, I say it's neither a hatchet job nor a hagiography, you know. And I think that that's probably reflecting my own sense of reality, as one always kind of creates in a documentary. You know, now, it's always going to have a perspective that is one's own.
3: No, I imagine you may have been partly chagrined when he then encouraged people to pirate the video so it gets broader distribution.
4: Well, I can only assume that sort of tongue in cheek.
3: I, I believe Tim so. Kim always too. claims.
4: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I. But I think it's sort of, um, you know, it's an interesting issue. You know, how do you distribute a film about distribution? I mean, in a sense, the traditional structures are still there. Um, certainly, you know, systems like Hulu and Netflix are changing the distribution climate but it still feels quite transitional so um, I mean I would dearly like the film after a short festival run to go out day and date because I feel it would be pirated given the subject matter and what I would like to do is to genuinely see if offering the film at affordable prices you know in as many countries as possible at the same time would reduce the amount of piracy that is and, you know, it's very hard. There's all these statistics that swirl around a kind of miasma of figures and data. And, and as an academic, having looked at quite a lot of those figures, you know, even ones that are emerging from the academic community, I really question the methodology of quite a lot of them. I mean, it seems everyone uses those figures to support their own position on distribution. So, um you know, it's a very, very hard data set to gather, so um,
3: Do you anticipate that, would be that interesting. You, do you anticipate you'll get distribution in the US?
4: Um, I believe so. I fortunately I I mean it was such a lot of work, this film. I mean it was such complex issues and for those filmmakers who are listening, I didn't use any narration, so there's no voiceover. I kind of, we carved it out of interview and archive and partly because I couldn't really think, I mean, I don't usually use voiceovers anyway, but, um, I couldn't think, well, whose voice would it be in a sense? So I, um, we carved the film meticulously out of, you know, the great volumes of material we had. So we edited every day from eight to six for about a year. So it was a lot of work. So. I feel in some ways I've done my bit, and my hard-working producer is the one who's now negotiating, and I think that Alex and I share a vision for distribution, whether we can achieve that vision Um, with the existing infrastructures, I'm not sure, so we'll just... Waiting to see now, and negotiations are going on at the moment. But I would say we're very likely to get. I can't really talk about any commercial deals sure. that are going on, but we are very likely. It looks to me to get US distribution. But then I'm hoping personally that then the distribution is, um, you know, simultaneous worldwide.
3: Well, um, one thing that we're very likely to do is to have a, a short break right now. And so um, we'll be right back after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report only on cranberry.fm.
2: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
0: Is your website hacked? Is your website displaying error messages or loading slowly? Even if there are no signs of malicious activity, your site may still be compromised. Websites, like cars, require regular maintenance to perform at their best and not leave you stranded. At Fjorge, our website maintenance experts can help you assess which one of our maintenance plans will best support your needs visit FjordDigital.com or call 612-877-3840 and get the support and protection your website and business deserve. That's F-J-O-R-G-E-Digital.com.
1: How much are your best ideas worth? PriorThings.com gives you an added layer of protection for all of your intellectual property, ideas and creative things. New business idea? Pitch deck? PowerPoint presentation? Song lyrics? Source code? Killer blog posts? We help you protect it all. How do we do it? We use the same technology platform that secures transactions for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Learn more at priorthings.com. Check out exclusive listener pricing for Cranberry Radio listeners by going to bit.ly/foundercircle.
2: Pick out some new favorite podcasts now at Cranberry.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly.
3: Okay, and we're back. And uh, if you're just joining us, we're talking to Annie Goldson. She is the director of Kim.com, Caught in the Web, which... Had a um, debut at South by Southwest in Austin, and had you had you been to South by Southwest before?
4: I hadn't, and it was a real blast, actually. I mean, yes. it was a perfect launch for the film, given it's got kind of the music element, the interactive element, the film element, and um, it was just such a huge number of people go to it. That Austin was just like full to the brim, <clears throat> but it, it was is, you know it, it was crazy, great with yes. all the music and yeah.
3: And the music is the dominant part, it seems. that That's when the it, the party really kicks into gear. And unfortunately, I, I've been for the tech part, and that's when they usually kind of kick, you know, shoo us away once the, the music starts getting heated up. But, um, that's right. So we, we talked about, you know, obviously from its title, the, the, the protagonist or so the, the main feature of your documentary is this larger than life figure, Kim.com. And, um, and for those who do haven't see ever seen him, I mean he's quite large. He's what, three hundred some pounds or
4: Well he's about six foot six I would say, and yes he's a large man too. I don't I'm not very good at calculating weights, but he certainly is a is a large figure for sure. And very tall.
3: And and he just has this bigger than life personality. So you have go ahead.
4: Yeah, I mean something that attracted me to the film and again without being in New Zealand you can't really understand the impact he's had but rather than, you know, after the original raid on the dot-com mansion which was in January 2012 um, you know, you would expect often for figures like Kim.com to hire PR people to perhaps salt whatever money they had left away in a you know, Swiss bank account, but he actually doubled down. I mean, he was very much a fighter, and the next thing, you know, there was a a rash of lawsuits, many of which are not to do with the central extradition case. They were to do with all of the mistakes that the various New Zealand authorities and American authorities made in conducting the original arrest, and then, of course, there was illegal surveillance he was surveyed on, by our equivalent of the NSA, the GCSB, which is part of the Five Eyes Alliance. So there was just, you know, mistake after mistake. And within our legal system, which I hope is pretty robust, you know, he had the right as an individual whose rights had been abrogated to challenge these mistakes. So he did that. And so there's been a string of so many court cases that was sort of dizzying. But then also Kim was you know, releasing albums, throwing raves, starting political parties. So he kind of doubled down rather than going quiet as, you know, certainly I saw some of the people from 2008 in the, you know, who broke the law in various ways and left economies devastated. They just seemed to kind of go quiet, um, right. but not Kim. And so he was a, it was a, um, I mean, an interesting thing about Kim is first a sense of humor, He's got a very, what I would call most a postmodern sense of humor. Like one year, he always does something on the anniversaries of the raid. Like the first anniversary of the raid, he launched Mega, the fully encrypted site. But he also did a big raid reenactment at the mansion. <laughs> so he had um, helicopters and kind of women in military outfits scaling down the sides of the mansion. Um, so there's something about his humor and his chutzpah, I suppose, that well, makes them interesting.
3: Didn't he drive a, a Rolls-Royce with the license plate God to the Vatican? <laughs> yes, he
4: did. He did, but, and he not meant to take cars into that area.
3: So there's <laughs> so, a, double, a double strike. So um, there a couple of things that are interesting that just jump out at you. Um, so the raid is in 2012, and, and here we are, we're talking in 2017. And the, the legal battle is still going on, or just over whether or not he can be extradited. Now it looks like yes, it,
4: that's right. It,
3: it looks like it's starting to tilt uh, against him. I think he just lost something in the high court, so his extradition is now increasingly likely. But of, for the last five years, all that has been going on is this back and forth, as you say, over you know the warrants being improper and you know the various procedural aspects. So he may finally get you know be, have come to the United States for um a hearing on, on the actual substance of the, the charges. Mm. Um so mm. that that's an interesting fact, just that it, we are now five years into it and you know Kim Kim dot com is no less being you know no closer to being a prosecutor than he was you know five years ago. Um the other thing is we've kind of described the the I guess the protagonist of the story. There's there's also some quite large Uh, other characters and one obviously being the United States government and the other being the film industry and their um, antagonism I guess towards these type of sites and Kim.com in general
4: Mm, mm. yes well certainly we did include critics of of Kim.com we interviewed um, Steve Fabrizio who's the lead counsel at the MPAA we interviewed Jonathan Taplin who's a very vocal critic And certainly, you know, I think the issue of piracy has been a really complex one. And personally, I don't approve of piracy, but I do feel it's going to happen unless we reconfigure the internet. And I'm someone who, I believe that the internet has tremendous potential and the openness with which it was first created is something that we should try to preserve. So I feel that, you know, that there could be Business models for distribution introduced that doesn't remove piracy altogether, but would certainly reduce it. I mean, there no. always probably be young people who have a kind of anarchist, you know, tendency. But there's also a lot about cultures and communities too on the web that I feel is an a, an interesting element of it. But 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 I am not someone who supports people making heaps of money out of content that is not their own, and I'm not accusing Mega Upload in particular, but just speaking in principle, I think I have concerns there. Whether it really impacts on people's bottom line, apart from the big players, I don't know, because as I say... My issue, really, about my own films, which, as I say, I've shown in major festivals, got great reviews and variety, et cetera, et cetera. But my problem was usually more obscurity rather than piracy.
3: Now, the film industry in New Zealand uh, is a relationship that has grown tighter and tighter, thanks in part to Peter Jackson and mm. the filming of the Lord of the Ring trilogies and um, follow up by um, Avatar and The Hobbit movies and so we're talking about a half a billion dollar industry now in New Zealand and so mm. that obviously you know that creates a certain pressure on New Zealand government to to listen to i guess the the voice of Hollywood that's
4: right and um certainly that is raised in the film um I think that's true. I mean, New Zealanders have always been very strong technically. I think having Peter Jackson in New Zealand has really, you know, helped people keep their skill sets high. So we're an attractive place for, um, as a filmmaking location, but also we do, as you say, we have prominent filmmakers here. Um, Not just Peter, but others have chosen to live here. So I do see it as a... um, a strong relationship, which on the whole seems to be good. You know, it does bring money and skills into our country. Um, Although Kim has a theory, which we look at in the film, and Kim's theory is that basically he was given residency in New Zealand against the advice of immigration officials, so he could be extradited to the U.S., now, there's been no smoking gun to prove that theory, but actually when you do an analysis of the email trails, some of the material that's come out through the Official Information Act, you know, discussions between um, our immigration officials and our intelligence services, et cetera, things do kind of stack up to support that theory. But as I say, there's no smoking gun, but that is the position that he holds, and he feels eventually you know, his truth will out and prove that. So that's the kind of claim. Whether it will ever be proven or not, I don't know.
3: And I've seen him make the charge in an interview that basically it was Vice President Biden at the behest of the MPAA that pushed this raid to begin with.
4: Well, yeah, I mean, I think there is an intimate relationship between the MPAA and government, you know, like I see the US system generally very much impacted by lobbying, you know, by powerful lobbying entities, be it Hollywood or the gun lobby or, you know, various lobbying agencies. So again, I don't feel there is a smoking gun that proves that, but if you're an academic and you're thinking in terms of sort of ideologies and affinities and directions Um, you know, those kinds of undercurrents, cultural and social political moments, combined with some emails that do at least point a lot of coincidences. I mean, I think that could, you know, his position could be substantiated.
3: And given New Zealand's, you know, I guess, incentive independence, but also reliance on Hollywood. How does that play out in New Zealand?
4: Well, in in a reasonably complicated way, we did get funding from the New Zealand Film Commission, which is, um, you know, like many countries, we do have an agency that supports film. Partly so we have a cultural voice. I mean, the thing with the American film industry, it's so ubiquitous and so popular, it can be very difficult for smaller countries you know, to compete in their own countries with our own representations. And, of course, there are exceptions like Taika Waititi's Wilder People Film did really well here. So we...
3: A brilliant it's film. It's
4: important for, for, for small countries to have, you know, agencies that do support local voice. So we did get funding from the New Zealand Film Commission. But the Film Commission is mandated not to interfere with editorial content And also the government has mandated not to interfere with the Film Commission in terms of its day-to-day operations. So I have to, you know, applaud both the Film Commission and the government for that structure because it allowed me to make this film, which could be seen as quite risky to them. So, um, but in terms of, um, you know, New Zealand also prides itself on its independence too. You know, from, I mean, we're... You know, we're a remote island flung out in the Pacific. We have a strong indigenous community, tangata whenua, Maori. Um, So we're just like every country. We have our particular configuration, but we have been politically independent on quite a lot of important issues. And that's something I think New Zealanders are quite proud of. Um, So I think in terms of our relationship to the U.S., In general US politics in general and Hollywood in particular we would consider we have good relationships with both but we would also resist any sense of what could be seen as bullying I think so that's that's the only way I can express it hope I don't get myself into trouble but that's what
3: I see (laughs) Um, in and in the climate today When uh, I I don't believe in New Zealand is one of the countries our current president has offended yet Um, But give him time, but the the question is now under the age of Trump is is seeing to cooperate with a, a US extradition demand that much more difficult
4: Well, I just think there's just so many balls in the air now. I mean nothing is really very predictable I mean, mega upnode now is an old technology. Things have moved on. You know, whether this makes the case less relevant, I don't know. Um, But, you know, in some ways, maybe Trump's political perspectives and positions maybe align themselves more closely with dot-coms. I don't really know. You know, so it's hard to say. For me, the future... I mean, it seems unlikely that the case will be dropped, um, but it seems to me there's lots of balls in the air and it's quite hard to predict what a change in your political structures will mean for the case and for copyright in general.
3: Well, I, mean, I was just thinking how, think it would think play, how that would play. I would think it'd be, it would be more difficult for a New Zealand um, prime minister to hand over Kim.com to Donald Trump than it would be to hand him over to Barack Obama.
4: Well, you know, the extradition law, as far as I've been able to untangle it, because it's also quite complex, is that New Zealand, you know, we we extradite pretty readily to Australia, for example, with we don't extradite to places that have a death penalty if we mm-hmm. feel the person charged would face the death penalty. Um, America is somewhere in between. There is a process. You know, there's definitely a cooperation, and, and certainly if you're talking about violent crimes, murder, etc., there is a process we follow. It seems to me that a case like this, which is effectively framed as a copyright-slash-fraud case, that it's somewhere in between. You know, that there is a process that needs to be gone through, which is, you know, why this kind of case is creaked on, Um but I don't know having Trump in the White House would make any difference ultimately to the way our government would handle the case. I think we also have a new Prime Minister and that's important too because certainly the chemistry between Kim.com and our former Prime Minister John Key who was an enthusiastic supporter of kind of Hollywood investment in New Zealand he's now suddenly resigned. So we have someone else at the top as well. So you know it's it's certainly a complicating factor, but I can't really predict what the outcome will be. But my sense is unless Kim faced the death penalty, I would imagine that the um, extradition process will continue.
3: And and so once it continues, it it goes through to the U.S. system. And in the United States, there's only a handful of uh, professors, law professors, who are household names or are frequently um, cited in the media and are well-known. And one of them, Lawrence Lessig, who um, is now at Harvard, um, he's actually issued an opinion that says that the um, he does not believe that it satisfies as a prima facie case that they would be recognized by United States federal law and subject to the U.S. New Zealand extradition treaty. On the whole, the filings are not reliable, and so you have already have some heavyweights lining up to support Kim once he gets mm. to the U.S. And so the, the 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 tragedy of the story could be you have this epic battle between you know the most powerful country in the world and this this man on an island that may just end quietly 3 years from now in a courtroom with the case dismissed and and him deprived of eight you know 9 years of his life battling mm. the US government
4: mm. well that's one possible scenario for sure i mean the other is that he might face 80 years in prison and that's 80 so um as I say, it's 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 a very complex set, as you must know that, too. I mean, it's a very complex set of kind of legal entanglements. And I'm not... Lawyers don't even seem to agree, or perhaps lawyers never agree. But they... Um, <laughs> but the <law laughs> I think we're
3: just, trained not to, yes.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, that's right. I mean, in some ways, it's the lawyers who've done best out of this case. You know, there's been a lot of taxpayer money, I would say, on spent on both sides of, you know, the case and... <clears throat> a lot of personal wealth too that's gone into legal cases so um but yes we interviewed Lawrence Lessig for the film you know not partly on the case but probably more broadly about issues concerning what i would call the copyright laws um, so you know he's quite an important voice in the film
3: and he is and he's very respected and you know he and he at one hmm. point contemplated or I don't know if he actually started the process but he he was talking about running for president.
4: He did. Last, he did yeah. because part of part of the issue is that um he was going to come over for the initial extradition hearing and present his you know opinion in court but because he was running for president at the time he couldn't come over which led to one of the more surreal moments I have to say in the extradition hearing. You know, you sometimes think, can this get any crazier than it is? But um, the judge looked quite perplexed when he was told that, you know, an important advocate or important legal opinion could not come because he was running for president.
3: Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he's thinking Only in this case, you know, this is so unusual in so many levels. What else could happen? Yeah. Yes, my 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 expert is not available because he's running for. <laughs> <Yes>. oh, <yeah.
4: laughs> no. And this was in the thick of, you know, we were getting lots of information about, you know, Bernie and Hillary and Trump. And so all of that was, um you know, nightly on our screens, too, at that point. So, yeah,
3: <laughs> we've made the it's good to know the U.S. election process has made the. um made your judicial process more colorful. Um, we're going to have to take a, a, a short break. and we come back, we'll wrap up, and you can tell us uh, about your, your next project and and hopefully when we might be able to see this film. Um, you're listening sure. to Cyber Law and Business Report, only on cranberry.fm.
2: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess
1: for our sponsors. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1 866 625 5717. That's eBrands with a Z for eBrands.
2: Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Centralize your search engine education from 101 to rock star level. Only on Cranberry Radio. Cranberry.fm The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Here is Bennett Kelly.
3: And we're back and we've been talking with Annie Goldson. She is the award-winning director and um, professor at the University of Auckland. Um, and we've been talking about her new film, um, Kim.com, Caught in the Web. And uh, so uh, as we wrap up, and I, I thank you for kind of walking us through it, which is... I can imagine the difficulty you had just doing the editing because the complexity of the, the, the issues and just the the way the legal system has plotted on. Um, so when when do you think this might um, be able to be shown to the, uh, the public?
4: Well, what we're hoping is there's going to be um, a sort of short, sharp uh, festival release, and we're showing it at Hot Docs in Toronto, at the end of this month, and I think there's some other festivals lined up. And then we hope, I hope, and this is an ongoing negotiation, it's released on as many screens as possible worldwide in something approximating what's called day and date, but that is currently being negotiated. But we seem to have good sales reps and agents and distributors and things like that, which is what my producer, Alex, is managing at the moment. But just to alert your viewers, because... Partly because I have a commitment to education as well as to filmmaking, and because when you make a film like this, you do extensive interviews and use maybe three or four minutes in the final film. We're developing a, a beautiful website that's we've shaped like a web.
3: Oh, it's web. fantastic! Yes, I've thing. seen it. Yes. Uh, yeah.
4: yeah. Well, the hope now we've got. We're doing another we're doing a kind of deeper web version. Um, the version you see is basically publicity for the film reviews and things like that, but we're going to um, host a lot of the material that didn't make it to the film, you know extensive interviews with amazing oh. people, um, you know short sequences that didn't make it. We're going to link to all sorts of other resources on the web so um, so you know basically. I think the site's going to be kim.com.film. If people want to keep an eye on that, we'll be mounting material, you know, relatively shortly. And the way I've tried to structure it is linked to the issues that the film brings up. So, you know, if your listeners are particularly interested in issues around surveillance or around copyright law or around sovereignty, for example, they can kind of self-navigate their way through to the various comments and. And clips that might be, you know, attuned to their interests.
3: And you can find that uh, that link, and as well as Annie Goldson's um, biography, on our show notes, which are at um, cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. And um, if people want to follow you, what's the best way uh, on the web or Twitter? Or um
4: yeah, I'm I'm my I'm Twitter. My Twitter handle is um, Annie Goldson, or one word A N N I E G O L D S O N um and we do have uh, i think it's .com film as the twitter handle for the film so um yeah i'm i'm more a twitterer than a facebooker i have to say that's
3: quite a, right. a, a lot of being people a bit are of a
4: new, <laughs> yeah being a bit of a news hound
3: I and do you have a good way. Do you have a next project you want to talk about or just say um, watch Kim.com? dot com?
4: Yes, I, I have a couple of a couple of interesting projects. One is prove one could even be harder than the Kim dot com film, so oh my I'm God. trying not to <laughs> trying not to follow it up but it keeps haunting me. And it's a it's a kind of it's a Pacific saga involving Russian millionaires and sinking islands and all sorts of things. So I won't go into the long pitch because it's very complicated. So that's one thing I'm doing, and then I'm actually doing something quite different, which is what we hope is a, a feminist film where we crowdsource material from the Women's March from worldwide, you know, worldwide. So mm-hmm. um, I'm doing that with some friends, and so that should be, you know, that should be interesting and fun. So. But actually, you know, I have a full-time teaching job, so I'm also pretty head-down. You finish a film and you do everything. You go to the dentist, you have your hair cut, you organize your life, <laughs> you catch up with everything else. So that's what I've been doing in the last month or so.
3: That's the insight we get. We get you know, filmmaking and going <laughs> yeah. to the dentist 101 from Annie Goldson. Yeah. Uh, well, it it's certainly been a pleasure, and definitely let us know if you're going to have any screenings in the U.S., and we'll, we're happy to promote them on the show. Um, we'll try to get as much people, because it's an interesting topic, and it's an important topic, really, um, and so many different levels, but not just on the uh, copyright law, but on you know, the use of the surveillance and you know, was it prop- you know, the, the way we approach this. Uh, and many different levels, and so that which is why your film is so important. So it, it's been a great pleasure. But do keep us do keep us posted, and we'll we'll pass that along. And I just want to thank you very much, and wish you best of luck in getting distribution for the film.
4: Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure.
3: Thank you, Annie. Annie Goldson uh, at the University of Auckland, and it's been a great pleasure. And uh, so check out our show notes. There'll be information on how you can follow her and on the film. And once again, the film is Kim.com, Caught in the Web. And so um, be sure to check us out at the Internet Law Center on the Web. We're a full-service Internet law firm, InternetLawCenter.net. And as always, check out our show notes, CyberLawRadio.wordpress.com. And check us out on Twitter at CyberLawRadio. This is Ben and Kelly. Thanks for joining us for another show. We'll be back next week right here on CyberLaw and Business Report.